Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the weekly live stream. My name is Ryan Polly, where we have these conversations to think deeply about Christianity and the Christian worldview, and where I bring on experts in the area related to the Christian worldview in order for you to interact with them to discuss these deep issues and think deeply about who God is and how we are to live here in this life. And joining me today is going to be uh, William Lane Craig. Dr. William Lane Craig, we're going to be having a fun conversation on the arguments for God's existence, as well as taking your live questions. So please send those in. So let me just quick bring them on here and then I'll introduce them. Dr. Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show and joining me. Great to be with you, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah, so for those of you who maybe don't know who Dr. Craig is, he is a research professor at Talbot School of Theology, where I got my master's as well. He is a professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University, the president of Reasonable Faith, uh, written uh, over, I think, 30 books, published hundreds of articles, and done great scholarly work in the area of philosophy. Um, and so uh, we're going to be discussing kind of the arguments and, and kind of, I guess, maybe one thing that's made you famous is your debates with atheists. And this is actually how I was introduced to you. And I shared this story, I think, briefly with you when we met, but I know you meet a lot of people and I'll share it with everyone else. You know, I, I was running a nonprofit organization that I founded, uh, helping students transition well through life and came to the conclusion uh -huh. that in order to transition well from high school to college and college to a adult life, they should have an understanding of what they believe and why they believe it. But I didn't know yeah. that apologetics existed. And it wasn't until wow. actually, I know, <laughs> it's like, hey, this is what they need to know, but I didn't know how to ground them in this knowledge. And it wasn't until my brother, who's in the Air Force, uh, received some challenges from some Air Force friends, reached out to his Bible teacher, said, hey, how do I answer these questions? And his teacher said, you should watch William Lane Craig's debates. And so my brother watched your debates. He said, you got to watch this guy too. So I went on and I started watching your debates and I was blown away. So you're kind of the introduction, I guess, that I had into apologetics. So maybe uh, uh, I, I would love to kind of hear your story on how you maybe started these debates, how you kind of got into debating mm -hmm. some of the world's top atheists. Well, it goes back to when I was a non-believer in high school. My sister and I used to argue all the time. Uh, and when she was a freshman in high school and I was in junior high, she said to me, you ought to go out to, for the debate team. All you like to do is argue. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, oh, it's this club in the high school. And they, they argue about things. And so when I graduated and went to high school the next year, I went out for and joined the debate team. And so for the next four years, I competed on the Illinois uh, debate circuit uh, representing our high school. Uh, for me, debate was just an intellectual sport. I, I was no good at athletics, but I could represent my school and compete by debating. And when I graduated and went on to college, I continued my debate activities at Wheaton and debated all over the country on the intercollegiate debate circuit. And so for me, this was not a ministry activity. It was just a sport, an intellectual sport. And when I graduated from college, I figured my debating days were over. Mm -hmm. But what happened after I completed my doctoral studies in Europe was I started getting invitations from Canadian campus ministries to participate in debates with professors and other prominent secularists on subjects like does God exist or humanism versus Christianity and so forth. And what I discovered is whereas a few score might come out and hear me give a talk, 
hundreds, even thousands of students would come out to hear a debate uh, between uh, a prominent exponent of the secular view and then a, an opponent or a proponent of the Christian view. And so it became clear to me that debate was really the forum for evangelism on university campuses today. Students want to hear both sides presented. They want a level playing field. And so debate is the perfect opportunity for that. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I want to talk a little bit more about those debates as we get in. But, you know, you also you also teach a class at your church. And this is also kind of my introduction to you, your Defenders class, uh, where I have it written down here. You, um, I started listening when you started round three of your Defenders class, or the third time, oh, I guess, good. through the class. But this was back on October 22nd of 2014. So I've oh, been listening... Goodness. Uh, for over six years, and you're still not through one round of your class. Uh, and no, I think we're, we're about halfway. <laughs> I think. So I'm just, I mean, I'm just curious, kind of, how did you start getting into this? Because I know a lot of questions sometimes apologists have is, how can I start teaching this in my church? And so here's mm -hmm. an example of not only teaching apologetics in a church and doing a short class, but you're teaching a. a pretty much a systematic theology on all the doctrines of Christianity. Uh, it's been going for six years, and here you say you're about halfway through. So this is a 12-year-long class. Uh, where do you get all this information, and, and how do you kind of, how did you get involved in your church in teaching this? Well, I believe that every Christian has a spiritual gift that is to be exercised in the local community of believers. And so my spiritual gift, I think, is in the area of teaching and so I wanted to exercise this gift in the context of our local church by teaching a Sunday school class. Now, in fact, I don't teach a class in apologetics because I, I don't think that would be appropriate for the local church over a long-term basis. Rather, it is, as you said, a course in basic Christian doctrine. Mm -hmm. It is a course in systematic theology. So what I did was I took the fundamental content of my work in theology that began when I did my doctoral work at the University of Munich and developed a series of lessons. And we have no agenda to get through each week. We take our time, we allow class discussion, and then we just continue the following week. And so it is a leisurely pace, as you say, and takes many years to get through all this material. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and how have you seen the response of the, the church members as they are kind of sitting through this class week to week? Mm -hmm. I find that this ministers to a small minority of people in the local church. I should have thought that there would be hundreds of people in a church of our size who would want to learn about Christian doctrine. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's a small, smaller group. We have about 100 people that come, but they are very sharp. They're intellectually engaged. Several of them are deacons in the church. And so what we're doing is training leaders, and out of the class has come um, a number of leaders who have gone on to become Christian speakers and apologists themselves, working with pro-life groups or other groups. So we're, we're working with the movers and the shakers, those 
in the local church who really care about these issues and who, who want to be used of the Lord. Now, the, the wonderful thing is that we've begun to tape these classes. We've begun to video record them and put them on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, the people who are there live on a Sunday morning are a tiny minority yeah. of the thousands of people all over the world that are watching these defenders classes. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to thank you for that because I, I started listening over podcasts while in the, in the Dominican Republic. Uh, that is where my yeah. initial interest in apologetics started. And, and the whole reason why is, again, I was watching your debates. You said you were a refer- research professor at Talbot School of Theology. And I said, where's that? Um, but oh. I, I actually went to Vanguard University and played baseball against Biola, but I just didn't know their, you know, their graduate program in theology was Talbot. And so I went, oh, I know Biola. So I started following Biola Apologetics online, and they said that they had a a certificate program that you could take from anywhere in the world. And I went, perfect. And so I had all the course material and everything shipped down to the Dominican Republic, and that's where this whole journey started. And and now since going and getting my master's at Talbot, and so uh, just an awesome awesome experience. Um, It is marvelous. We've got people in Myanmar and Nepal, Pakistan, joining this Defenders class. It just thrills my heart to think that we can be helping to equip beleaguers in such closed countries as those. So what would you then maybe say is, why do you think maybe people in the church aren't as interested in developing a deep understanding of, of what Christianity teaches, of the Christian doctrines? There could be a couple of reasons for it. I think that people generally believe what they believe on emotional grounds, Mm. not intellectual grounds. And so for most people, it's enough to go every week and kind of get your emotional fix in the worship experience and um, in your devotional lives. And they don't really care, I think, to reflect deeply on these sorts of questions. And then I have to say, too, in defense of the average layperson, is that the average layperson is struggling with other issues, a a marriage that's falling apart, rebellious teenagers that you don't know how to deal with, financial problems and pressures, maybe health pressures, that the cares of life just press in upon folks so hard that it makes concerns about the relationship between God and time or the historical atom just seem dry and far removed and impractical. Mm. So what would you say then is, is why these are not impractical, but very practical, necessary things that we should focus on as Christians? Well, one reason I think, Ryan, is for the sake of evangelism. When we share the gospel with unbelievers, they're going to have tough questions for us about, for example, the problem of evil and suffering in the world, or the reliability of the gospels, um, or Adam and Eve and evolution and creation. And it's just not effective to say to these people, well, you just got to believe. We need to have good answers. The other thing I would say to folks in the church is for the sake of their kids, they better be intellectually engaged. Otherwise, we're going to lose the youth in the next generation, in high school, 
and university, Christian kids are intellectually assaulted with every manner of skepticism and non-Christian belief. And if we don't train our kids in why and what we believe, we're going to lose that next generation. And so if parents love their children, I think they desperately need to become intellectually engaged with this sort of material. Yeah. Now, you have debated, I mean, some of these professors that these students might wind up uh, kind of coming in contact with at the university. You've debated a lot of these major professors at universities. What have you found kind of in your debates uh, interacting with some of the most intellectual atheists? Because I guess what you hear online is, oh, Christians are closed-minded. They don't want to hear the arguments or evidence. And the moment they present themselves to true rational thinking, you know, maybe then they're going to give up their or silly belief in God. So what have you found in discussing with some of these atheists on college campuses that Christian parents are going to find their kids maybe being in class with? I want to underline the point that you made, that these debates are not held in churches. These are held on secular university campuses because that's the audience I'm interested in reaching. And what I find is that, for the most part, the opponents that I debate are so arrogant and so sure of themselves that they don't even bother to prepare for these debates. They show up thinking that if they trot out their lecture notes from Philosophy 101, they're going to make mincemeat out of this Bible pounder that they're debating. And what I try to do is prove to be as indigestible as I can. And so I I find that these fellows are just generally woefully underprepared. They've never thought these issues through very deeply themselves, and they're not prepared either to give a positive case for what they believe, nor are they prepared to answer objections to their views. Yeah. So you, you mentioned here that many times they're not able to give a positive case for what they believe in. And maybe Christians watching this often find the, the atheists respond to them saying, I simply just lack a belief in God. How would you respond to this idea of lacking a belief in God rather than making a I, positive case for atheism or naturalism? That is a redefinition of atheism in order to excuse the atheist from having to make a case for his worldview. Atheism is the view that God does not exist, and that is a claim to knowledge. And therefore, if you maintain that, you need to bear your share of the burden of proof. This redefinition confuses atheism with agnosticism. It's the agnostic who says, well, I don't know whether God exists. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I don't know. And therefore, he has no position to defend and no burden of proof to bear. But the atheist makes a knowledge claim. There is no God. And that requires that he bear his fair share of the burden of proof. That's good. Uh, So I want to ask one quick question that came in here from Susan before we jump into kind of the content of your uh, debates. Uh, But she asked here, uh, has Dr. Craig dealt with doubts as he has looked into the answers to difficult questions? Yes. In fact, I've written on this. I have a little book called Hard Questions, Real Answers. And it opens, I think, with the chapter on doubt and how to deal with it. And I present there several very practical suggestions on how to handle this real problem in uh, in the Christian life. Uh, I think it's a common problem. 
and we mustn't try to just suppress our doubts and pretend that we don't have them. We need to try to deal with them in an appropriate way. So I would recommend uh, that chapter in hard questions, real answers. Perfect, awesome. All right, so in your debates, uh, you, you have this, uh, I, I guess you could almost say simple approach, maybe, of you, you're not coming in with a, a, maybe a tricky or or information that the atheist isn't prepared for, or maybe the, you, oh. you kind of have the exact same kind of five-step approach where you work through uh, three arguments for God's existence, you work through the argument for the resurrection, and then the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, how would you kind of maybe summarize this approach to maybe someone who's trying to figure out how can I make a case for a Christian theism. Uh, How do you kind of lay out the case for the truth of Christianity? Well, the case is very carefully crafted, uh, Ryan. It begins with arguments for God in a very general sense, a cause of the universe. And then it begins to get more specific, uh, a designer of the universe. And then yet more specific, a source of moral goodness, moral values, and so forth. And then it turns to the person of Jesus of Nazareth and God's self-revelation in Jesus. And then finally closes with a personal testimony of one's own experience of knowing God. So I save the personal, more emotive appeal to the very end only after we've set the table with good philosophical arguments for Christian theism. Yeah. And, you know, I don't mean simple in the sense that you haven't put so much into it, absolutely. But it's, you know, in that sense that, like, they know what's coming. Uh, Atheists know know exactly what you're going to present. So Yeah, I love what Frank Turk says. He he says it's like a quarterback giving his playbook to the other team. Okay, here are the plays we're going to run. Now, do your best to try to stop them. And it really is sort of like that. I, I have tremendous confidence in these arguments and therefore don't feel any need to sort of surprise my opponent with a trick case. I think these arguments really hold up. Yeah. Now, do you have a kind of a preference when talking with someone on the uh, trying to show the truth of Christianity that to to uh, maybe we'll start with uh, on one of the arguments for God's existence? If you're trying to show that God's exi- God exists, are one of the maybe three major arguments that you prefer or, or a different one that you don't use in debates for whatever reason? Oh, man. I'll get to that last question in a second, but I think that the first thing one needs to do in sharing with an unbeliever is to ask a lot of questions to figure out where he is Mm -hmm. in his thinking. Um, It's not necessary to share arguments for God's existence if he already believes in God, as most people do. You can move right to Jesus and the evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. Uh, on the other hand, if he doesn't believe in God, then you got to back up a step and think about giving some theistic arguments. I like the argument from the beginning of the universe myself, the cosmological argument, mm-hmm. but I find that the most powerful argument with students tends to be the moral argument because it really grips you existentially where you live, uh, and it, it's so inescapable. Um, So the moral argument is very good. Now, is there an argument that I think is really good that I I don't share? Um, Well, I have been working lately on the argument from the applicability of mathematics Mm -hmm. to the physical world. And the more I have worked on this argument, the more powerful and compelling this argument seems to me to be. I don't see how the naturalist 
has any hope of explaining how these a priori, causally unconnected, abstract mathematical objects could have any connection with the physical world. And yet, physical science is guided by these mathematical equations that are codified as the laws of nature. And I think this is a powerful argument for a mathematical mind who has designed the cosmos according to the blueprint that he had in mind. Hmm. Would one of the responses to that kind of be maybe similar to the, the, the design argument that, hey, we just got really lucky. It just so happened to be this way. And if it wasn't this way, we wouldn't have math. But we have math. And so, hey, we, that's what we see. Well, I think that's uh, about all that the non-believer can say is that it's just a lucky coincidence or a happy coincidence, as I like to put it, that mathematics describes the physical world. But that is no explanation at all when you think about it, that it's just a happy coincidence. Um, this is so improbable that that seems to me to be just an untenable uh, response. The accuracy and the elegance of the mathematics that describes the physical phenomenon is so breathtaking that Eugene Wigner, um, the great Nobel Prize winning physicist, has said it's a miracle that this stuff works. He said this is a miracle which we neither understand nor deserve. I read an article recently in Scientific American by a professional physicist on this subject, and he said, I actually feel sorry for people who are not scientists because they cannot really comprehend the miracle of the applicability of mathematics to the uh, to the physical phenomena. So the, the response that this is just a happy coincidence just is, is not uh, a plausible response for someone who understands the elegance uh, of the laws of nature and their mathematical character. Yeah. Wow, that's so good. Yeah, I know. I I read about that. I think uh, Melissa Kane Travis, who is also at Houston Baptist University, uh, has a section on that in her book, uh, the the Mind and the Maker, I think it's called. Uh, and I really enjoy kind of having a short conversation with her on that topic. I'd love to look into that good. more here in the future. Um, so, with the three arguments that you present, uh, maybe let's just qu do a quick rundown for maybe some of those who who uh, uh, are kind of more new, I guess, to the arguments for God's existence. So the cosmological argument, uh, you said, is the argument based on the beginning of the universe. Can you kind of give a quick summary of what this argument would be? I can summarize it in just three steps. Number one, uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. And then what you do is analyze what it means to be a cause of the universe and a number of theologically striking properties come out of such an analysis. It leads to a first uncaused, beginningless, changeless, timeless, immaterial, enormously powerful personal creator of the universe. Wonderful. And I do have some questions and some objections to that that we're going to talk about here in a moment. Uh, but the second argument, I guess it, we've already mentioned, is the moral argument. How would you kind of explain the moral argument? Uh, I typically share that one third, but that can also be summarized in three steps. Number one would be if God does not exist, then 
objective moral values and duties do not exist. That is to say, if there is no God to serve as the absolute standard of moral values and duties, then everything becomes subjective and relative. Number two is that objective moral duties uh, and values do exist. In our moral experience, we apprehend a realm of objective moral values and duties that impose themselves upon us, from which it follows logically and necessarily three, therefore God exists. So is there a reason why you frame that, uh, the first premise kind of in the negative, if God does not exist, then these objective mm -hmm. values wouldn't exist, rather than if God does exist, then we would have objective matter of values and duties, we do have those, therefore God exists? Yes, I, it, there, that is very deliberate. One reason is that it connects historically with what atheists themselves say. Nietzsche, Bertrand Russell, Jean-Paul Sartre, and the existentialists have argued that if there is no God, then life is absurd, and there are no objective moral values and duties. So this first premise is not something that Christians say. This is something that the atheists say. And so I think stating it in the way that the atheists do helps to connect with that whole tradition and body of literature. The second reason is I think it's more powerful rhetorically. I think people get the point that if there's no God, then there is no absolute standard. There's just this world and moral values and moral beliefs would just be the spin-offs of biological evolution and social conditioning. And if you were to rewind the film of human evolution and shoot it over again, a very different creature with a very different set of moral values might have um, arrived. And so by what right do we say our moral values and duties are objective and right and yours are wrong? Uh, you, you need a transcendent anchor point or plumb line for objective moral values and duties. So that's why I stated in the negative like that. Yeah. yeah I guess the other way that it is, I, I guess I often hear it that's not the negative, is if objective moral values and duties exist, then God exists. Objective moral that's values just and duties. A different, yeah. Uh, form, it is logically equivalent yeah. to the argument as I stated. Okay, perfect. Um, so the one that we hadn't mentioned earlier, but the second one you normally share is the design or fine tuning argument. Uh, how, how would you kind of summarize this argument? Yes, this argument has come roaring back into prominence in recent years because of the discovery of astrophysicists that the initial conditions of the universe present in the Big Bang itself are exquisitely fine-tuned to permit the evolution and existence of human life in the cosmos. Uh, and so this version of the argument does an end run around the whole issue of biological evolution, which has been so poisoned by the creation-evolution controversy in our public schools. And the argument from fine-tuning uh, goes like this. Number one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Number two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Perfect.
Well, I just want to encourage those who are watching. If you have questions on these three arguments, uh, things that you don't understand about them or objections you want to raise to them, please send those in in the comments. Uh, but I want to move back then to the cosmological argument. Um, uh, mm -hmm. And I want to present actually a couple uh, objections that came in on my YouTube channel a few months ago uh, when I had a uh, video related to this. And I, I told the guy, I said, hey, I'll, I'll, I'm having Dr. Craig on in a few weeks or months. I'll ask him then. Um, but he kind of presented two main, I guess, objections to the cosmological argument. Uh, the first one being... Let's take them one at a time. Yeah. So the first one being that uh, he says, as it is written, uh, premise one, it, it commits the black swan fallacy in regards to the premise that everything that begins to exist has a cause. And so he's... Um, I had actually looked up the black swan fallacy. That wasn't one that it was mentioned in my, uh, my logic class. But wow. it's this idea that every swan that I've seen is black, therefore every swan is black. And it's kind of... Um, and so, you know, uh, the... Uh, whatever begins to exist, everything I know that begins to exist has a cause, therefore everything has a cause, uh, and this just commits this fallacy. There could be things that are uncaused out there like the universe or something else, uh, and so therefore this premise one is fallacious. Yes. Um, premises don't commit logical fallacies, Ryan. The objector here doesn't understand the arguments for the premise. I give three arguments in support of premise one, and two of those arguments have nothing to do with inductive reasoning. My main reason for believing that whatever begins to exist has a cause is metaphysical. I take it to be a metaphysical first principle that being only comes from being. Being does not come from non-being. Something cannot come into existence from nothing. And given that, anything that does begin to exist has to have a cause. The second argument is equally metaphysical. It is that if things could come into being without causes, then it's inexplicable why we don't see anything and everything coming into being without a cause. Um, there can't be anything about the universe that makes it particularly susceptible to coming into being without a cause, because if the universe doesn't exist, there isn't anything to make it susceptible to coming into being. So if things can really come into being without causes, we ought to see this happening all the time with all sorts of things, but we don't. Then the third argument is indeed inductive, and that is that when we survey um, things that begin to exist, we inevitably find that they have causes that bring them into existence. And we never find any exceptions to this. So this is an inductive inference that is based upon a, a, a wide, wide sample um, and is always uh, found to be the case that things that begin to exist have causes. Uh, and so it's not susceptible to the black swan fallacy, uh, which if that is a fallacy, what that would be is the fallacy of taking too small of an inductive class. It would be like um, saying that uh, a certain factor causes lung cancer, but you haven't taken a broad enough class of people to draw that inference. Uh, similarly, you, you haven't surveyed enough swans to be sure that there aren't any black ones. But in, in the case of things that begin to exist, um, it's universal in our experience that things begin to exist don't just pop into being out of nothing. So it doesn't commit the fallacy of having too small 
uh, a sample class. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so this comment just came in based on what your response there was from the realistic nihilist. It says, sounds like uh, you're saying being comes from being. Uh, this response kind of begs the question. I don't think it begs the question. It, it, it simply implies that anything that does begin to exist has a cause. Uh, I take it, as I say, to be a metaphysical first principle. And first principles cannot be proved. First principles are either simply accepted or rejected. And it seems to me metaphysically inconceivable that being could come from non-being, that something could come from nothing. Okay. Um, so uh, the comment kind of goes in on, uh, from my YouTube channel and says, uh, if, uh, even if I ignore that premise one is true, uh, the best the argument gets you is that there's a cause uh, that caused the dead state of the you know the universe. And he says, um, uh, um, let's see, we have no evidence that the cause of the universe was spaceless or non-physical. We have no scientific theory that says that. Uh, this cause, uh, no, the cause being spaceless, non-physical, or timeless does not follow from the evidence. So how do we get from a cause of no. the universe to what you said of a spaceless, non-physical, timeless, eternal cause? Mm -hmm. This objector has obviously never read uh, my work on the Kalam cosmological argument in which I go into some considerable detail on the properties of the cause of the universe that we can deduce. Um, in the debates that I participate in, I don't have time to go into that. And so I wait for the objector to raise an objection. But in fact, when you put the philosophical arguments against the infinity of the past together with the scientific arguments for the beginning of the universe, uh, a number of striking properties of this cause will, will come out. It has to be beginningless. It has to be absolutely changeless. And therefore, it cannot be material. Therefore, it cannot be in time and space. It has to be enormously powerful to bring the universe into existence without a material cause. Uh, and so all of those attributes that I mentioned are deducible uh, given the philosophical and scientific arguments for the finitude of the past and the beginning of the universe. And I would uh, plea with the objector here to read my published work on this uh, rather than simply go on the basis of a YouTube video of a debate. Yeah. Good. Um, all right. So uh, uh, going along with that, kind of the last response is I think it's important uh, with the cosmological argument to define, I guess, what we mean by universe. Uh, he, he comments mm -hmm. here and he says, are you using the universe to describe the universe from which the point uh, of a dense state that this universe began to expand? Or are you talking about all matter and all energy and all universes? Matter and energy might not have a beginning. This universe might have had a beginning, this one, uh, but this does not mean that all matter and energy had a beginning. And so his, his claim is that the, the arguments for the beginning of the universe that we use, like the, uh, the Big Bang and the expansion of the universe and, and the second law of thermodynamics, that only points to the beginning of this universe that we live in, not all matter, time, space, energy. So how would you respond to that? When I first wrote the book, The Kalam Cosmological Argument, I took the a term, the universe, to refer to all physical reality. That's the way the word was typically used. And the evidence indicates, as I say, that the universe so defined began to exist, is not past eternal. Now, what's happened in astrophysical cosmology since that time is that uh, scenarios of the so-called multiverse have been floated. 
in which our observable universe is just one small part of a much wider reality called the multiverse. Um, the multiverse would be the universe, as I originally described it. The universe is everything that there is physically. So the, the, the multiverse is just a different way of referring to what I was calling the universe. So did the multiverse have to have a beginning? That's the question now. And here I would apply the same philosophical arguments and the same astrophysical evidence to the multiverse, and this, they will be equally applicable to it. And it will show that the multiverse itself had to have a beginning at some time in the finite past. Okay, so are you saying then, because I can see like the philosophical arguments for like the impossibility of an infinite regress applying to a multiverse right. and saying even that has to have a beginning. And I know Jeff Swearing from Reasons to Believe has written a book on the multiverse where he he makes this point. Uh, but can we use um, can we use arguments and evidence from Big Bang cosmology to point to a beginning of the multiverse if the Big Bang is only for our universe within that theory? Yes, yes, we can. Now, I want to underline the point that you just made, though. We mustn't um, discount these philosophical arguments. For me, it is the philosophical arguments against the infinitude of the past that is the mainstay of that second premise. And the scientific evidence is merely empirical confirmation of a conclusion already reached on the basis of philosophical argument. Now, can we use astrophysical evidence in application to the multiverse? Absolutely. This is exactly what uh, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin did in crafting their Bord-Guth-Vilenkin theorem. This was directed specifically against inflationary cosmogonies that said our universe is just a little bubble in a foam of uh, bubbles, uh, all expanding uh, from eternity to eternity in this multiverse. And what the bord guth vilenkin theorem showed was that while these inflationary cosmologies have an infinite future, they are, only have a finite past. And therefore, they do not serve to restore a beginningless universe, even for the inflating uh, mother universe. Um, when Alan Guth says that he believes that the universe is past eternal, it is not on the basis of these inflationary cosmologies. It's on the basis of a model uh, that was developed by Sean Carroll uh, in which the arrow of time at some point in the past flips over and runs in the opposite direction so that there is a sort of mirror universe um, back there. I don't want to say prior to the Big Bang because it's not earlier than it. Rather, there's a point at which you go back to the Big Bang and then the arrow of time flips over and runs in the opposite direction. So that mirror universe is in no sense in our past. It does not restore a past eternal universe. Rather, what it gives you are two universes with a common beginning point, each expanding according to its arrow of time from a common origin point, which is the beginning of the universe. So Vilenkin has said uh, quite candidly that there are no successful models 
tenable today of a beginningless universe. Uh, those that have been offered have been shown to be either mathematically inconsistent or empirically uh, untenable. Uh, indeed, he says that uh, the board gutfeld lenkin theorem gives us good reason to think that such models simply cannot be developed. So quite definitely, the answer to your question is yes, the same astrophysical evidential considerations can be applied to the multiverse as to our observable universe. That's good. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. Um, okay. So <clears throat> moving along uh, then, uh, man, there's a few more things I want to get through and we're running short on time. Uh, but uh, what if someone, this is another kind of objection I get uh, that I got on my channel and it says, um, and this is kind of in relation to, hey, even if I admit that God exists, kind of what is that going to change? And he kind of brought up this idea of hypothetical norms and non-hypothetical norms. And I'd love to get your thoughts on it. His question was, my question specifically asked is, if there was a non-hypothetical or categorical norm that dictates we ought to concern ourselves with God's beliefs about how we should live our lives if we grant his existence. All right. That's the moral argument. Mm -hmm. And the idea there is that it's not enough just to have hypothetical norms because then you have to ask yourself, well, why should I obey these? They're only hypothetical. They don't impose themselves on me. They're not categorical. But the second premise of that argument is that there are moral values and duties that have a categorical claim upon us. They're not just hypothetical. Like if you want to live a happy life, then you should do this. Or if you want to flourish, then you should do this. Mm -hmm. Those are hypothetical norms. Uh, rather, what um, we apprehend in moral experience is that it is objectively morally wrong to torture and rape a little girl. Uh, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. So it, what it, I mean, it kind of sounds like though it's like, well, if you want to go to heaven, then believe in God. But hey, if you want to like you can do these objective moral wrongs and you can go to hell or you can, you know, there's, and hey, if that's what you want to do, that's what you do. And it seems like hypothetical in saying, well, yeah, if you want to follow God, like, but how is it that God's existence and even the grounding of objective moral values and even making something objectively wrong means now you oh. should follow it, I guess. Oh, well, I, I guess what, oh, well, now the, why you should follow or, it, that's the moral <laughs> question. It doesn't make any sense. Like, why should I do what I should do. Um, you have a moral obligation to do those things. Now, you might say, well, why be moral? Why, why not live an immoral life? I'll just live for self-interest. Um, and here, I, I would say that living a moral life under theism is in your best self-interest. Uh, it, it will be conducive to your flourishing. Whereas on naturalism, what is prudentially valuable comes into conflict with what is morally valuable. Sometimes what is morally valuable will force you to sacrifice and give up your self-interest and to, to act imprudently in that sense, maybe even to give your life. But on theism, prudential value and moral value align with each other. It's in your best self-interest to act morally. Okay. Um, all right. So one, um, 
a theological position or idea that you um, that you defend is called Molinism. And I think that I often find that people uh, are kind of unsure of it. And this is uh, where I lean as well, but I still have questions about it. Uh, but people always ask me when I do uh, debate, uh, not debates, but when I do uh, d um, uh, events with students, it's like, hey, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? And it's this kind of Calvinist versus Arminian debate. Um, so maybe quickly, uh, could you summarize what Molinism is? And then I, I do have a couple questions for you yeah. on that as well. In a nutshell, Molinism is the idea that God knows what any possible person he might create would freely do in any circumstances in which God might place him. Okay. And then this also then applies into uh, how we are saved, right? And this is where it kind of maybe comes into conflict with a, yes. a Calvinism. And so maybe quickly, I, I'm curious, uh, uh, why are you not a Calvinist? I know that you mentioned this in uh, uh -huh. a debate with, uh, um, I think it was Christopher Hitchens that you did at Biola. Uh, there's things that you kind of think are wrong. So maybe first, why are you not a Calvinist? I think Calvinism makes it unintelligible why some people go to hell. Uh, on on Calvinism, God and God alone unilaterally determines the salvation or damnation of every person. And it seems to me that the scripture says clearly that God's will is that every person should be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And in that case, I can't make any sense of how that could be true unless human beings have the freedom of the will to reject God's grace and separate themselves from him. Okay. So how then would you respond to Romans 9, 14 and 16 that says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Right. I think that's absolutely correct. God has the freedom to have mercy upon whomever he wants. And the burden of the ninth chapter of Romans is to deal with Jews who say, how can God, the God of Israel, extend his offer of salvation to those Gentile dogs? This is the property of his people, his chosen people. It shouldn't be offered to the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, who are you? to speak back to God. God will have mercy upon whomever he wills. And if he wants to extend mercy to the Gentiles, that's his prerogative. So what's the answer to Paul's question? Upon whom has God chosen to extend mercy? Paul's answer is those who have faith in Christ Jesus. God has chosen to give his mercy to those who will receive his uh, atoning uh, death and place their faith in Christ for salvation. And so is a Christian, uh, how, I guess, um, how do we have, uh, the free will to be able to put our faith in Christ if we are enslaved to sin? Well, I like, uh, what Eleanor Stump has to say about this. Uh, we may not have the positive freedom in our own sinful selves to embrace Christ and place our faith in him. But what we do have the power is to quit resisting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is working upon the hearts of recalcitrant sinners, convicting them of sin and drawing them to himself. And at some point, 
the sinner has the ability to quit resisting. He doesn't do anything positively to be saved, but he just gives in to the Holy Spirit and lets him do his uh, regenerating work. So would then you say that, uh, so you would then disagree with irresistible grace, that, that God's kind of prevenient grace is upon everybody, but that we do have the ability to resist it? Yes, that is what Molinism says in a fuller exposition of Molinism. It says that God's grace is not intrinsically efficacious, that is to say irresistible. It is extrinsically efficacious, that is to say it is efficacious in the lives of those who receive it. Okay, and then, uh, so in what sense uh, then would predestination come in of, of is, God, uh, is God in his middle knowledge knowing what free creatures will do and then he chooses us before the creation of the world? Is it, is it afterwards? Kind of when does God's knowledge mm -hmm. of these things take place? Here Molinists differ, interestingly, among themselves on that question. Some people, like Suarez, thought that God first picks out certain people that he wants to be saved, like Janie and Stephen and, and Peter. And then he knows via his middle knowledge what gifts of grace would freely elicit their affirmative response. And so he creates them and gives them those gifts of grace, and the rest he passes over, and so they are reprobate and damned. Now, that comes about as close to Calvinism as you could possibly imagine, and yet it's still consistent with libertarian free will. Molina's own view was that that's not the way it works. God doesn't pick out individuals uh, prior to his creation of a particular world. Rather, God looks at the different feasible worlds that are available to him, and then he simply freely picks one to be actual, and then it turns out who it is that will come to Christ on the basis of his gifts of grace in that world. Um, so that is, that is not something that is determined by God in advance. And I think that makes the most sense. Frankly, I'm a Molinist, not a Suarezian there. I would say that what God does is he looks at all the feasible worlds and he sees which of them has an optimal balance in it of saved and unsaved. The, the most saved people you can get with the least unsaved. And there will be a whole range of worlds like that that are feasible for God. And then God simply picks freely, arbitrarily, one of those feasible worlds. And then uh, it's a matter of uh, our free will as to whether or not um, we are saved in that feasible world. If we're in that feasible world uh, it's entirely up to us whether we freely receive God's grace and are saved or not. Okay. And then I know one objection, I guess, to Molinism that I hear quite often is it's kind of philosophy applied to Scripture, that it's not actually a, a, a oh, principle oh. found in Scripture or uh, as you might you know, say Calvinism is or something like that. So how would you respond to that idea that this is kind of philosophy applied to Scripture? I would say that the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation are exactly the same way. And so if you think that the Trinity and Incarnation, as expressed at Nicaea and Chalcedon, are acceptable, then Molinism should be acceptable to you as well. Moreover, I would say that this is actually true of Calvinism itself. What Scripture leaves us with is an apparent inconsistency. 
it affirms on the one hand divine sovereignty over everything that happens, and then it also affirms libertarian free will of human beings. And the question is, how do you put these together? Well, the Calvinist offers one model, namely unilateral divine determinism and a compatibilistic view of human free will. That's not taught in scripture. That's the Calvinist's philosophical synthesis of the data of scripture. And the Molinist offers a different synthesis that affirms divine sovereignty and human freedom, um, uh, but I think offers a better synthesis. Perfect. Well, thank you. Um, so John texted in and, and said, uh, uh, would you ever debate James White on Molinism? No, uh, I don't debate fellow Christians. Okay. Uh, my ministry is a ministry of evangelism on secular university campuses. I'm not interested in internecine debates. Now, what I do participate in will be things like panel discussions and interviews uh, at theological and philosophical conferences. So if there were a session of the Evangelical Theological Society featuring uh, Dr. White and myself and maybe other Calvinists and Arminians, I'd be happy to participate in something like that at a professional conference. But I'm not interested in having debates with fellow Christians. Okay, perfect. All right, so we have about four minutes and a, three quick questions. Uh, maybe see if we can get through them. Uh, so John uh, asked uh, as well, uh, what are your thoughts on presuppositional apologetics? I think that the central insight of presuppositional apologetics is nicely captured by Alvin Plantinga's Reformed Epistemology, which says that certain beliefs, like the existence of God or the great truths of the gospel, are properly basic for us and are grounded in the testimony of the Holy Spirit. With that, I wholeheartedly agree with presuppositionalists. But I think it's a, a terrible mistake to say that the way you argue for Christianity's truth is by presupposing its truth. That is a classic example of reasoning in a circle. P, therefore P. Uh, and that's just worthless as an argument. Okay. Uh, my wife was curious on uh, what Christians have inspired you. Alvin Plantinga is my uh, hero in philosophy. Uh, I was also inspired very early on by my teacher, Stuart Hackett, who has since gone to be with the Lord. And uh, even earlier than that, E.J. Carnell, who wrote Introduction to Christian Apologetics, the first apologetics book I ever read. And Carnell inspired me both by his work and by his personal example. Awesome. Uh, so the last question then um, actually uh, came in from Chris through text as well. Uh, and uh, he's kind of wondering and, and has a brother-in-law that's that's going through this. Um, how, as Christians, do we, um, let's see, he kind of says, how do we kind of navigate, I guess, that when Christian theologians have two different kind of claims on truth. And the example given was that there are some Christian theologians who uh, are pro-LGBTQ uh, versus the entire apologetics community uh, doesn't come to this conclusion. He says, you know, do I trust Ravi Zacharias and William Lane Craig and Greg Coco and Frank Turek and Sean McDowell, or do I trust Jen Hatmaker and, you know, Matthew Vines? And so how do Christians uh, differ? Uh, and I guess this could be applied even to Calvinism, Molinism or whatever. How do we, do, yeah. how do we, you're right. Now, these, these are all issues that do not separate saving faith from heresy. Uh, that is to say, 
heresies that would separate you from salvation. It's not a heresy to believe those other things. I think they're mistaken, but they're not heretics. And so it seems to me that there's just no way to avoid weighing the arguments yourself. Uh, you, you have to look at the arguments and the evidence given by both sides and make up your mind. I, I just don't see any way around it. Awesome. Um, awesome. Well, I really appreciate this time. It went by so quickly. Maybe I can have you on again in the yeah. future <laughs> to okay. discuss a few more things. But I, I've listed all of your, your website and your links below. I've, I've posted the videos, the short animated videos that you have, I think are wonderful to the arguments for God's existence from your web, uh, YouTube channel. Uh, is there any, anywhere else that you kind of want to uh, encourage people to look for more information on what you and Reasonable uh, are doing with Reasonable Faith? Well, we've got the YouTube channels, then we've got the website. And then they might check to see if there's a local reasonable faith chapter in their area. We've got these all over the country, indeed around the world. And these provide a forum for local fellowship for believers who I find are often intellectually lonely in their churches and can appreciate uh, the fellowship of other like-minded, uh, intellectually inclined Christians. Awesome. Well, Dr. Craig, thank you so much for taking this time and joining and discussing these issues this morning. Thank you, Ryan. And I, I commend you for such an intelligent interview. It's really a pleasure to have uh, talked with you this morning. Thank you. I appreciate that. Bye. Have a wonderful day. Bye. And thank you all so much for watching. I hope that you are encouraged to think deeply about the existence of God and these issues as well. Again, connect on social media. On July 10th, I'm interviewing Greg Kokel on his new book, Tactics, the 10th anniversary edition that came out recently. And so I'd encourage you to check that out as well. So thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. God bless. Brian Polly. Uh, think deeply. See you guys. Hesitate to follow